Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. The show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Walrus from space! (laughs) Walrus from space? Dave Robinson here. Well, before I tell you what that's all about, let me tell you about a great opportunity for doing science. And it doesn't matter what your educational background is, what your job is, your age, your health, whatever. It turns out everyone can do science. It's called citizen science. Now, we had a story about citizen science way back in June 15th of 2020, So that was a while ago, so it's time we had another discussion. Citizen science, and sometimes it's called crowdsourced science, is defined as the voluntary involvement of the general public in scientific studies. And there's lots of different examples of citizen science out there. It really depends on what you're interested in. For instance, volunteers can be involved in an action project where they're advocating for something specific. So, for instance, monitoring what type of litter is found on the highway or on the beach, or if you're assessing water quality in a stream to show that there's more pollutants downstream of a factory than there was upstream of a factory. Those are action projects. But there's also citizen science projects where folks go out and collect data at a specific site, for instance, like You might count the number of monarch butterflies or the number of birds. And then you report back to a central data processing center where there are scientists who can collate all this data and interpret it and try to synthesize all that information that you and hundreds of other people might have collected. But if the idea of wading in a creek or chasing butterflies in a meadow isn't exactly your cup of tea... There are other citizen science projects that could be done entirely at home on your computer. Maybe you could discover new galaxies by examining the photos of the cosmos taken by high-powered telescopes. Or sometimes there's old data that others have collected, but that are now available on the web so that private individuals can analyze it in a new way. For instance, there's a need for volunteers to digitize the handwritten notes of botanists back in the 1800s. That way, future scholars can search for key passages in those notes that were originally written in the field in longhand. Well, did you know that the first instance of citizen science goes back more than 1,900 years ago, when people in different parts of ancient China would report to a central office about the occurrence of locusts in their fields, you know, those grasshopper-type insects. According to SciStarter.org, which is probably the best place to find a citizen science project you might be interested in, according to them, there are more than 3,000 different citizen science projects around the world looking for volunteers. And they estimate there's about 100,000 registered participants at their website, 
But other estimates are that there's millions of volunteer scientists out there already practicing science. Now, you might be asking yourself, as I have, does citizen science actually help? Can amateurs really help increase our scientific knowledge of the universe? Well, first of all, I should remind you that some of the most famous scientists of the past were actually amateurs. You're talking Isaac Newton, Ben Franklin, Florence Nightingale, Charles Darwin. They were all amateurs. The planet Uranus, for instance, was discovered by an amateur back in 1781. Well, we can't all be Charles Darwin, can we? What about regular crowd-sourced science carried out by everyday non-scientists? Does that actually help? Is the data that citizen scientists collect actually worthwhile? Well, apparently the answer is yes. I'll use one project as an example. It's the Dragonfly Mercury Project. Now, the Dragonfly Mercury Project is this nationwide program that asks volunteers to wade into ponds and creeks and collect dragonfly larvae. Turns out that the aquatic larvae of dragonflies are biological accumulators of the pollutant mercury. And mercury is considered one of the top 10 most hazardous chemicals in the environment. And the goal of this project is to use dragonfly larvae as indicators of mercury that is contaminating aquatic food webs. So if you're a volunteer for the Dragonfly Mercury Project, step one is to collect dragonfly larvae from public lands. And it's the National Park Service that's a cooperator on this project. So there's lots of public land to choose from. The larvae are aquatic, so this means that volunteers get into the water with nets to collect the invertebrates that are at the bottom of the water, often under rocks or what have you. And then once the volunteers get these larvae, they need to identify what species of dragonfly they've collected. And there are almost 350 different species of dragonfly in the United States. Then they measure the length of the larva and then ship the larva on ice to a central laboratory run by the U.S. Geological Survey. And that's where the amount of mercury in the larva's body is determined. Since 2011, there has been 107 different national parks involved, and there's 4,500 citizen scientists that have participated in this project. Mammoth Cave National Park here in Kentucky is one site that's been part of the Dragonfly Mercury Project. And what have they found out? Well, data from this nationwide sampling has shown that most of the sites examined were in the moderate to low-risk category for mercury pollutant, but that 12% of the sites were in the high or severe risk category, which means that fish and other wildlife could be harmed by the mercury present. And of course, that means any people that are eating those fish or wildlife could also be affected by that mercury. We are part of the food web, after all. This project's also reported that mercury levels can vary widely, even in locations that are fairly near to one another. So apparently it's really difficult to predict where mercury might be. 
Of course, another question about citizen science is about the accuracy of the data collected. Well, that was examined, too, by the federal researchers in charge of the Dragonfly Mercury Project, and they found that the citizen volunteers were actually doing a very good job. Over a four-year period, it was found that the volunteers accurately identified the type of larva they had collected 86% of the time. That's excellent, considering that some of these larvae are really difficult to distinguish from each other. Even professionals have a difficult time telling these larvae apart. But the volunteers were getting it right 86% of the time. So after 10 years, the Dragonfly Mercury Project has really accomplished a lot. It's collected valuable information about the levels of mercury in our national parks, but it also reveals a lot about the natural biodiversity there. It helps connect people to the parks. It gets families outdoors. It teaches the public about aquatic biology and about the environment. It enhances scientific literacy. And perhaps it even inspires young people to pursue science as a career. So is citizen science successful? It sure looks like it. Today we've got an alternative citizen science project that you might be interested in. And this one doesn't require you to wade into pools of water to collect insects. This project can be done entirely on the computer in the comfort of your own home, which is perfect during this pandemic. This project is called Walrus from Space! And we've got a guest on the show this week to tell us about the Walrus from Space project. It's Mary Williams. Mary's been volunteering on this conservation project for the past few months, and so is a veritable expert on spotting walruses from satellite images. The photos are taken by one of four satellites built by the Maxar Technology Company. And Maxar provides 90% of the high-resolution photos of Earth that are used for gathering geospatial intelligence for the Pentagon. They also help with monitoring wildfires and weather. And they're also hired for commercial applications. These are the same satellites that first spotted the Russian military buildup around Ukraine. Maxar satellite cameras have a resolution of only one foot which is the best technology there is. And with almost 10,000 square miles of Arctic coast to look at, looking for walruses, that means there's a lot of photographs to be taken. And a lot of photographs that need to be examined by somebody. Well, Mary Williams has already looked at more than 500 of these satellite images, and she's not looking for Russian troop movements. She's looking for walruses. And here's Mary discussing her experience with the Walrus from Space project. And then we'll follow up her story with a short video clip from the World Wildlife Fund, which is sponsoring this project. Here is Mary Williams. My name is Mary, and this is a story about the Walrus from Space project. It is set in the Northern Hemisphere, in the Atlantic, Pacific, and Arctic Oceans. This is the home of the walrus. We all think of the walrus as these huge creatures with enormous tusks and long whiskers. 
The tusks are actually modified canines, or teeth, and the walrus use them to pull themselves up onto the ice flows. So fitting is the scientific name, Odobanus rosmaris, which means tooth-walking seahorse. The walrus is considered a keystone species, a species which has a disproportionately large effect on its natural environment. Without keystone species, ecosystems would dramatically change or cease to exist. Walrus normally spend much of their time on the sea ice. They use the sea ice for resting and giving birth. As the sea ice diminishes due to climate change, they are forced to seek refuge on land, which can lead to overcrowding and also cause them to have to travel farther to seek food. The Arctic home where they live is warming three times faster than the rest of the world. Roughly 13% of summer sea ice is disappearing per decade. Other factors that have had an impact on walrus population, such as large-scale commercial harvesting, have been banned, except by a few traditional native tribes, but there are still thousands of walrus that get killed every year, either on purpose or by accident. There is a project that is being sponsored by the World Wildlife Fund and the British Antarctic Survey. It is called the Walrus from Space Project, and its goal is to recruit 500,000 citizen scientists to observe the presence of the walrus populations through satellite images over the next five years. The data collected in the census of the Atlantic and Laptive walrus will give scientists a better picture of how the walrus population is doing in the face of climate change. Hannah Cubanes, a space research associate at British Antarctic Survey, said, Assessing walrus populations by traditional methods is very difficult as they live in extremely remote areas, spend much of their time on the sea ice, and move around a lot. Satellite images can help solve this problem. However, doing that will take a huge amount of imagery. Too much for a single scientist or a small team. So we need help from thousands of citizen scientists to help us learn about this iconic animal. This is where we can help. I have taken it upon myself to join in this valuable research project. When I first signed up, I was introduced to a short training program that would help me spot walruses from the satellite images. The training was simple and easy to understand. From there, I was given satellite images to observe and then determine if walrus were present. Then I entered my results. It was easy. If you are a conservationist, or would just like to participate in helping scientists study these important animals, you can join in the search by going to the website at www.org.uk walrus from space, that's one word, or just do an internet search for walrus from space. I feel that this is a small contribution that I or anyone can make to help scientists in their study of the effects of climate change on wildlife species. We can all do a little something to help our world. Good luck. Happy searching.
Walrus from space! Sounds like an old 1950s science fiction film. But in fact, we're creating a 21st century detective story. And you could be the detective. We want your help to find lots of walrus. <laughs> Easy, right? Look, there's one now. Impressive whiskers. But walrus don't like people getting that close. The good news is, satellite cameras can now take photos of all kinds of wildlife from space, including walrus. By examining thousands of these satellite images, we can help to understand how many Atlantic and Latav walrus there are, even in the remotest part of their Arctic home. And over time, we can see how they're being affected by climate change. And we need you for this walrus search. Be a part of a huge public science project and help to safeguard the future of the iconic walrus. Volunteer just 30 minutes or more and be a walrus detective today from the comfort of your own home. Whiskers are optional. That was a short video clip by the World Wildlife Fund about their citizen science project called Walrus from Space. Prior to that, we heard from Mary Williams telling us about her participation as a volunteer on this valuable research project. Thanks a lot, Mary. And now we're going to switch gears. From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Earlier, we talked about animals migrating up mountains to find cooler temperatures in response to a warming climate. Well, crops are migrating too. The USDA map of plant hardiness divides North America into 13 zones. Zone 1 is farthest north, with winters below minus 50 Fahrenheit. Zone 13 is farthest south, with winters around 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Over the last 30 years, all zones have shifted a half zone to the north, as average winter temperatures increased across the lower 48. Models predict that plant zones will continue to move north about 13 miles a year, and it's happening all over the world. In Australia, the wheat belt is moving 16 miles a year. In response, farmers in many countries have had to change the times of year they plant or harvest. Some now have a second growing season. Warmer weather and longer seasons have allowed some farmers to grow more lucrative crops in higher quantities, while others have seen traditional crops fail and prized land lose its value. Where might they go for new opportunities? As northern latitudes get warmer, lands that were once too cold to farm may become plantable. In fact, Canada is preparing for millions of acres in northern prairies to replace farmland potentially lost in the south. The warming climate will continue to change plant distribution and farming practices, with both positive and negative effects on global agriculture and food supply. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org. And now let's hear from Scott Miller about climate change. Now don't forget, our mission here at Forward Radio is primarily educational, and any viewpoints expressed are that of the speaker and not the station. Contact us through our Facebook page if you'd like to share your views. Just go to Bench Talk, The Weekend Science on Facebook. But in the meantime, take it away, Scott Miller. Scott here. 
In January 2021, reads the following quote. According to U.S. Senator Rand Paul, fears of climate change are overblown. But we should also venture out and drastically change the environments of other planets so humanity might settle them. Paul tweeted his bizarre stance on Sunday after he attempted to roast Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez over her aggressive plans to fight climate change, a move which, HuffPost reports, backfired spectacularly. And clap backs aside, his stance that there's no urgent rush to try and mitigate climate change is troubling, given the exhaustive mountain of evidence to the contrary. Unquote. I mentioned Senator Paul precisely because it is troubling, given the exhausted mountain of evidence to the contrary, why he holds such non-scientific thoughts while listed as a doctor, which implies some sort of science background. Of course, I could go off on a tangent citing his rants about COVID, but that's not the purpose of this talk. I am interested in climate change and what it really is doing. So, for a dose of reality, let us venture into some recent articles from NASA's Climate Change Newsletter, which anyone can subscribe to. In the December issue was an article entitled, Reducing Emissions to Lessen Climate Change Would Yield Dramatic Health Benefits by 2030. The lead paragraph of the article states, Air quality improvements resulting from a worldwide reduction of greenhouse gas emissions would benefit human health and prevent economic losses, according to new research by scientists from NASA, Duke University, and Columbia University. Later in the article, the scientist that led the research, Drew Schindel, states, But the benefits that we can quantify for health, agriculture, well-being, medical expenses, labor, and the economy are overwhelmingly driven by clean air in the near term. In other words, working towards cleaning up our air rather than snarking at the possibility can yield good near-term effects. Longer-term effects may be realized over the next half century, such as reducing the potential of heat exposure deaths due to higher temperatures if nothing is done. But in the short time, the time span that the short-sighted seem to focus on, measurable results are possible. In the January issue of the same newsletter, two additional articles caught my eye. One titled, Extreme Makeover, Human Activities Are Making Some Extreme Events More Frequent or Intense. Among the issues produced by human-directed climate change is a list of some 22 weather or climate disasters in 2020 of at least $1 billion in damages to the United States alone. More and more scientists are able to draw robust connections there are reductions in the number of cold waves, increases in the number of heat waves on the ocean and on land, increases in the intensity of rainfall and drought, and increases in the intensity of wildfires. Despite the complications and uniqueness of individual events, scientists are finding significant human contradictions to many of them. Now, if we listen to Kentucky's junior senator, this is all noise and nothing to worry about. In a third article, also from the same January newsletter, titled Global Climate Change Impact on Crops Expected Within 10 Years, NASA study finds, one of the crops mentioned as being negatively impacted is corn. Now, I like corn, and I know others who do as well, but corn is essential for one of Kentucky's signature products, bourbon. 
95% of the world's bourbon production is produced in Kentucky and, in my opinion, and that of most Kentuckians, that would also be the best bourbon produced. But as this is a $8.5 billion signature industry in Kentucky, generating 17,500 jobs and contributing immensely to the tax coffers at the federal, state, and local levels, and thus reducing what you would have to pay to maintain services from all three, one again has to ask Kentucky's junior senator what he would want to use to replace this. What industry could come into Kentucky and fill a gap created by reduced corn yields or reduced yields of corn of high nutritional value, whether for the table or the drink drank with dinner at that table? The facts are clear. Climate change is human-driven. Senator Paul can deny all they want, but let's be honest. Should you listen to politicians versus scientists that work in the field? The politician wants your vote. The scientists are providing facts so that you can do better things for your life. You make the call. That was J. Scott Miller, Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Maysville Community and Technical College. Thanks a lot, Scott. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. that's Eastern Time 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.